The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Looking at God's Word now as we look to John in a continuing way. Last week we looked at John 2 and saw the remarkable incident of the first miracle of Christ at the wedding of Cana. Immediately following that, and as John formats it, as the Spirit was telling the order of these things, there are days in which these are happening. John is is saying this happened on the next day and on the third day and so on. And then comes this incident, apparently a little time afterward, as Jesus and others with him go to the Passover feast. I'm going to be reading from John 2, beginning at verse 13. And you might want to keep your finger also in the, one of the last pages of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. Easy book of all the minor prophets. You can always find Malachi because it's right there at the end of the Old Testament. I'll just read a few verses from Malachi 3. Listen first to God's word in John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal, for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And just a word for background, you'll see how it fits in. Malachi chapter 3, the first three verses. A prophecy of God here at the very end of the Old Testament period. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
This is God's own word. I'm asking you today to notice that almost every time Jesus Christ appears on any scene that we're told about in the Gospels, you're quickly enough aware that he dominates the scene. He's in command of the scene. That was true last week at the wedding of Cana in Galilee, even though you would say his command was of a very quiet kind. He sat there among the gifts and had guests of the wedding and had a little discussion with his mother and so on, and then gave a quiet order to some servants, didn't make anything that was really noticed by the whole crowd, and yet a great miracle affected the whole scene. Well, it's much more obvious here in the scene we see next as Jesus comes to cleanse the Jerusalem temple. He is the most active, perhaps, in a physical way that he was at any time in his ministry. And in fact, he shocks people with the way in which his actions are violent, moving against people, driving out animals, tipping over tables. It doesn't really seem that much like Jesus in some ways. And yet here again, he is in command of what is happening. Luke chapter 3 carries the prediction from John the Baptist that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire, of course, is about judgment. And Luke 3.17 adds a word that John's gospel does not mention, that Jesus said that his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That act of judgment is what he's beginning to do here in John chapter 2, verse 13 and following. He hits unbelief and false worship head on. He has no tolerance for it. He acts suddenly. He doesn't give too much word of explanation to what he is doing as he does it. But as we stand back and look at it in a historical perspective, we can say, well, this is the start of the fire of the judgment of God against worship that is actually false and polluted. Now, Jesus cleansing the Jerusalem temple by driving out some animals and overturning some money exchangers' tables is a symbolic warning to the nation of Israel. Now we know, and I won't go into the argument, you can spend a long time on this, but there are New Testament scholars who get all exercised about the fact that John places the telling of this story at the beginning of his ministry where the other three Gospels all tell about it, but it's at the end. It's at the final Passover before the cross. And so people say, well, what is John doing? Why does he take it? Is he just dislocating things for some purpose? And there's quite a discussion. I'll tell you, it has a really simple resolution, and the majority of New Testament scholars, at least I think the good ones, uh, decide that there actually were two such cleansings, one at the beginning and one at the end of the ministry of Jesus. That's not an unreasonable thing at all to believe that he did. At the end of his ministry, he stood there in Jerusalem facing the last week of his life, and he issued a cry that could have had much to do with what he was doing here with this cleansing. Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, he said, how often I would have bid you come to me like a hen would gather her chicks under her wings. 
but you would not have me. You see, Israel was a place of polluted worship. They were worshiping. Big crowds were worshiping, as a matter of fact. Hundreds and even thousands of people were flooding into the city of Jerusalem from all over, from other countries, let alone from Galilee and Judea. They were coming for this great feast called the Passover, the great annual time when when every Jewish man was supposed to appear as often as he could, even if he lived at a far distance. They had a worship life of a kind. And they were coming to the place that God had designated for worship. But what was going on was not worship that pleased God, not at all. What was going on apparently was, for the most part, certainly many exceptions could have been called, but in many hearts, many hundreds of people, it was a cold and mechanical ritual intermixed with commercialism and worldly thinking and worldly actions such that their national life was now like a wagon with the wheels falling off, and at the heart of it was a failure to worship God in the ways that he had commanded. That's a principle, I think. If we would say reverence in God-ordained worship, when it becomes corrupted, leads to national failure and national decline. That's a principle that applies in our land as well. To learn the true state of the union in America today, I'm afraid you can discover more from John 2 than you can from an appointed political speech by a president who gives himself no evidence of knowing or seeking the one true God, and yet he would tell us the state of our union. When an individual is godless and seeks to lead and seeks to chart solutions, those solutions are going to be at the core of the problem unless God is in the mix and God is at the very center of what he points to. When any people collectively or individually lose their passion to meet with God in the way that he appoints for them, to meet him, they too will find they are losing their souls, just as Israel did in this long ago time. This morning I have a longer first point and a short second point for you, but first of all, to fill in some background on what is happening here, I'd ask you to look at what I call God's historic sanctuary, profaned. We just don't have the kind of time it would take to trace the rich background of where the temple came from. I can only suggest in a few words to you how God had worked first having a sanctuary, you could say, a meeting place between God and man in the Garden of Eden. There, Sweet fellowship as he met with man, but of course, man spoiled that, and that sanctuary's gone. Then you might remember an appointed sanctuary under Moses in the desert wanderings when the Lord instructed that a tabernacle, a meeting place out of skins, be made under very specific directions and placed in the middle of the camp. And it was there not for some mystical purpose, but to remind the people that here God The true God, the only God, was dwelling with his people if they would look toward him and have true faith in him. Isaiah, in chapter 56, verse 7, said at a later time, the Lord's own words, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And that house, of course, was talking about the temple which was built after the tabernacle 
through. You remember David wanted to build it. The Lord said, no, you're not the one. Solomon will build it. And he did a glorious, grand structure that later was ruined as the temple was pulled down by conquerors and the people taken away into exile. So time after time, God had a sanctuary. He said, meet with me here, then here, then here. And every time, through man's disobedience, the sanctuary disappeared, only for a new one to emerge later on. But I remind you, the Lord's call that his house, his sanctuary, was to be for all nations, not just for Israelites. It was a house of prayer for all nations. That was always intended by the Lord. And so there were people coming, Gentiles coming up to pray there as they passed through that particular land. There were Jewish people in exile out in lands like Syria and North Africa who came to the Passover. And God was interested that they all would come and anyone who would seek him in a sincere way in spirit and truth would meet with him there at that place on earth. Well, here's something that I think will help you. It helps me understand what is going on in this cleansing of the temple because it's easy to have the opinion and there are artists who sort of draw their pictures, paint pictures of Jesus cleansing the temple and I think they give us the impression that he started a massive riot that encompassed the whole environs of the temple. I really think that's a very impractical and probably wrong way to uh, picture in your mind what happened. It helps me to know that the temple precincts, the immediate plateau, and, and the plateau is still there, although the temple isn't, the plateau on which the temple stood was some 14 acres of ground. Now, that's big. I can help you with picturing Westminster's situation. We own 16 acres of land here. That encompasses all the way up into our cemetery, the widest reaches of parking lots on both ends, and so on. 16 acres, a little bit bigger than the precincts of the temple. Now stop and think that if these market stalls for animals and money changers and so on had situated themselves as they did in the courts of the Gentiles, which was the outermost ring of the temple courtyard, they, they wouldn't press into the more sacred district where only Israelites could go, but they were there in the courts of the Gentiles. Why, they were probably spread all the way from our south parking lot around Oregon Pike, all the way around the next parking lot and up into the cemetery. And that, that's a serious way to, to picture what they were doing. Probably not just dozens, even hundreds of stalls. Competing merchants, if you've been in the old city of Jerusalem, you know you can hardly walk through the narrow little streets without some fellow grabbing you and saying, come, come in, come in, American, I have a bargain for you. you know, I remember going down those streets and thinking almost being manhandled by merchants who wanted to sell me something. And here they were calling out, I have a better rate of exchange than Ahmed over there, and, and so on. And everyone calling things out, animals bleeding away, pigeons cooing, dust, distraction, that whole ringed area around the temple. I don't imagine that it's practical at all to think that Jesus drove all those people out. He came into some area of that temple court and he, without a warning, picked up some twine or cord or something, maybe rushes or something that was on the ground and started to flay the backs of some of the animals and drive them away. And he, you know, sheep, I guess you can get them going pretty easy. You just whip them a little bit on the back. He didn't hurt them, but moved them out of there. 
money changers' tables, flip them over here, there, a half a dozen of them, money flying on the ground. I've always wondered, why, why didn't he get arrested? There were temple police. They were watchful for this kind of thing. My conclusion, and I think it's on track, is that it wasn't that much of a disruption. If I had been where some of you are sitting right there and it was happening in the south parking lot of the church, you wouldn't even be necessarily aware except there was a little bit of extra noise over there. You wouldn't be aware if you were over here, acres away. This little local disturbance, I'm not trying to minimize its importance, but I'm trying to say to you that it was a symbolic disturbance. And what was going on? These people were conducting practically needed, legitimate businesses. Not all of them were dishonest. Some probably were charging exorbitant rates and so on. And we think there was some collusion with some of the temple leaders and things we don't have to go into. But many of them were just honest businessmen. But the problem with their businesses was they belonged in the streets of Jerusalem, not in the courts of the temple. As a real estate person would say, the problem was, in a negative sense, location, location, and location. They should not have been where they were. They were providing a complete distraction and a barrier to people of all nations to use the court of the Gentiles for their appointed purpose. Prayer, praise to God, quiet devotion and seeking the face of the Lord couldn't even happen. You see, and you can imagine the temple authorities kind of saying, well, Put your, you know, as long as you keep your stall out there, outside the, the court of the Jews, it's fine. We don't really care. That's just the court of the Gentiles. Who cares what happens there? And so God's temple was being polluted and ruined in its purpose. Jesus did this, as I said, at the beginning of his ministry, according to John, and again at the end of his ministry, according to the other three Gospels. And he was making a statement. There was one word, I think, that characterizes what is needed in worship that was being made impossible by all this commercialism and making it into a shopping mall. And that one word is reverence. I've come to think as I've considered what worship is over the many years I've tried to lead worship, that if you could ever reduce it to one word, the one essential word has to be reverence. Reverence isn't the simplest word to define, but it certainly means God-centeredness, the consciousness that comes into the presence of the living God that is not merely concerned with a social exercise or the idea that because I'm in a particular building, I must be worshiping. The concept that I come as it were, with my whole body and mind and spirit bowed low. Psalm 95 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. That's an essential characteristic of worship, whether our bodies do it or our minds and our spirits do it. Reverence, recognition of God, was being vandalized in the courts of the Jerusalem temple just as surely as if people had come in there with spray paint cans and spray painted swastikas on the walls of the temple. God's place of prayer was being vandalized and reverence was impossible. Have you ever used the expression when you tell somebody 
that thing that just happened or what she said or he said is just eating me up? Well, Psalm 69.9 is the words that the disciples recalled and John recalled where it says, zeal for the Lord's house is eating me up, consuming me. Righteous indignation on God's behalf was eating Jesus up. For he certainly believed and sought for mankind to obey the Lord and come and reverence the Lord, who he knew was holy, holy, holy. And he cannot be reverenced in the middle of a farmer's market. Farmer's markets are great things, of course. We have to say that in Lancaster County, don't we? But God isn't reverenced in a farmer's market. He's reverenced in his sanctuary where his people come and meet with him. And here was the press of commercialism, the greed of merchants to make a profit on these Passover pilgrims coming that caused the heart of Jesus to be eaten up from the inside like a cancer burning in him for the honor of his God and Father. We might have expected this, actually, if we'd been looking at a place like Malachi 3.1, and nobody was looking for it. But here the prophet Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, was saying that the Lord whom you seek, the Messiah, is going to come suddenly to his temple And who can abide the day of his coming? He's going to come to refine, to judge. Now, as I said, mankind has had more than one possible sanctuary. It started with the Garden of Eden. We ruined that one. Next came the sanctuary of the tabernacle. Israel pretty much ruined that one as far as disobeying God and turning away from him. The temple under Solomon... People turned away and were unfaithful, and conquerors came in. That one was lost. Now we've had Herod the Great, who, by the way, was certainly no true believer, but he just loved to build big buildings and did it all over the place. And he loved to say, look what I made. For 46 years, Herod's architects and carpenters and masons had been working on this temple. It wasn't finished yet in the time of Jesus. Remember that time when the disciples were walking along and they, they were noting the building progress and said, look, Lord, look, isn't it magnificent what's being built there? And Jesus turned them away from worshiping a building. Here was a building that was intended to simply say, God wants to meet with you. God wants to fellowship and be praised by his people. Be still at that place and know that he is God. He's also the God who sets aside a day in seven and says, I've also got a sanctuary of a day that ought to be sacred where you would meet with me. You might know me on that day because you'll have time that is set apart from commerce, which you can cease doing on that day. How ironic what day it is today. Ask the man in the street, what is February 2nd? Super Bowl! Sunday, time for the pigskin sacrament, not for worship of God. And the Lord is grieved, and his heart says, where are the people that will set me apart and reverence me and lift me up? I have a second point here that's also the concluding thought today. 
Notice how Jesus turns the thinking, and nobody understood it that day. They, they had to wait a while to understand it. But when people were challenging him and saying, prove to us that you have some authority to do this, notice what he said. Under this second point, I'm saying God's newly appointed worship sanctuary is now the body of Christ. Because since 70 A.D., there's been no grand temple. You can make as many trips to the Holy Land as you want to make, and you'll see a gleaming golden dome of Islam's great mosque standing where the temple of Jerusalem used to stand. A standing mockery to the people of God of what happens when they prove to be unfaithful. And Jesus said about that temple something that was a double entendre. It had a double level of meaning. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You know how they reacted. Are you crazy? What are you talking about? This thing took 46 years to build. Are you going to tear it down and build it up in a day? Well, he was right in that it would be destroyed. They found that out in just 40 years from the time he spoke. But of course he was speaking, and we know this, he was speaking about his physical body. And it says here, the disciples remembered after he was raised from the dead, and they they put it in context and understood what he was saying. That he was telling them that now Jesus himself, God and man in a human body, was the new appointed sanctuary of God, the meeting place between God and man. And that he was come to render that huge, magnificent building for all of its importance and all of its grandeur obsolete. That it wouldn't even matter when the Romans tore it down and pulled the stones apart. It wouldn't matter because its function was no more. He would provide once and for all the only sacrifice that was needed. Nobody needs a Jerusalem temple anymore, nor will we ever need one. He became the meeting place of God with man by being the Passover sacrifice once and for all. The tent of meeting is Jesus Christ himself now. We come to God through him, and he's the only possible way to do that. I love the irony of a little prophecy in a little book we just about never read, the prophet Haggai. Haggai 2.9 has a prediction about the Jerusalem temple with a double meaning, again, that says as people were bemoaning, you know, that, that the temple of, of uh, Solomon would be ruined, and they said, well, it could never be built again to be as good as it was. Through Haggai, the Lord said, the latter glory of this place will be better than the former. The latter glory is Jesus Christ. So, since we have the risen body of Jesus as the true temple of God, I ask if you are one who is zealous to seek him out, crucified, risen, ascended to the right hand of God, and come before him with a passion to meet with him, to know him. Is there some eagerness in you as you even come to corporate worship to think, here, I'm coming to meet with my Lord. God, by the Holy Spirit and through his word, will be there Christ will be there in the corporate gathering of his people, and I am consumed to be part of that. 
I would not think of not prioritizing that and seeking the Lord in the midst of his gathered people. Are we zealous to preserve the worship of God from the kinds of intrusions of this world that would turn it into a happy, clappy entertainment session that would take those who who provide music for us and say, oh, look how wonderful they are. Or take the preacher and say how wonderful he is. Blasphemy. We must come and worship in a God-centered way with reverence that bows before God and no man, no woman. You know, our man-centered times, I think, have brought about such a loss in the idea of the majesty of the true God. I sometimes think about my young grandchildren, and I wonder what it will be like for them in 30 years. Will there even be places in the land very common where reverence is part of the worship of God? It's passing away, folks. Many of you are here, and I'm not saying this to boast about ourselves. We're, I hope, not doing anything but what faithfulness dictates that we do. But many of you are here because you say, I couldn't worship the other places where I was. There was no reverence. There was no honor for God. It was all on man. Will we hunger for worship that first of all makes us bow low and see our place as Paul called it today in our word uh, that was read, the chief of sinners, and then doesn't leave us there on our faces, but lifts us up and says, in the gospel, be lifted up. You have a new life. Christ has come. Are we passionate to know him, to meet with him, to seek him in prayer? I call on you, people who confess his name, to strive with all your might to bypass the intruding influences, the commercialism, or anything which might displace that one who we come to worship, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, as he called himself, the one in whom, the only one in whom, we can actually meet with God. Father, I pray that we would be single-minded in our worship Do not let this place in its simple beauty ever become for us an idol. We are not worshiping the true God because we are Presbyterians, because we're in this building, because a certain person is the pastor or we play a certain kind of music. We hope, our Lord, that we are here because above all else we seek you. We ache to know you, living God, We ache to hear by your Holy Spirit that you would bring your word alive to us week by week, that you would comfort and guide and lead us, bless us with the knowledge of sin forgiven and heaven open, and make us single-minded to reverence you with the same passion that your son had for that. We pray in his name. Amen.